0: Hey everyone, it's Mark Raco. Hope you've had a great holiday and we'll have a wonderful New Year's as well. Uh, this week, of course, we're taking the week off, uh, spending a little time reflecting, and you know, with our families. For Fashion is Your Business, but we still wanted to bring you some great content on one of Mouth Media Network's other shows, Retail is Your Business. Uh, there was a really great episode, a really meaningful conversation. We thought you, our Fashion is Your Business audience, could benefit from. For the first time, e commerce will not just be a channel for transactions. People can now actually browse and ship online just like they did in store. Ben Rodier, co founder and chief client officer at SalesFloor, shared how the company offers a mobile application platform designed for store associates so they can personalize each interaction with consumers, whether that's in store online, on social, any channel, helping clients get as much as a 10x lift in online conversations and a 47% increase in average order values compared to traditional e-commerce metrics. SalesFloor is enabling store associates to go virtual where consumers are met on retailer and brand websites by an associate from a local store near the consumer it can help guide the shopping experience by offering product, apparel recommendations. Um, they can demo items via live video chat, etc. So uh, here is the entire conversation from Retailers Your Business with Ben Rodier from SalesFloor. We hope that you enjoy, and we'll see you in January with brand new episodes. Happy New Year.
1: This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Rodier, Chief Client Officer of SalesFloor and what I love about retail is a story that I like to tell about when I was 12 years old and it was the holidays. And up here in Canada, we had a store called Consumers Distributing and Consumers Distributing was this great experience where you walked into the store, you filled out a chit and you waited for your item to come down this big long conveyor belt in the whole store. And it was like the first experience that I ever had in retail as a mature person, a mature human being. And when I fast forward to my life as a business person in retail technology, I always think back to that experience because waiting for that item, whether it was a toy or a game to come down that conveyor belt is kind of like what waiting for an e-commerce order or walking into a store and feeling really fulfilled is all about today. And so what I love about retail is that feeling that you get. And that feeling that I got when I was 12 years old at Consumers Distributing. And when I think about what I do every day, whether it be at sales floor or working with our clients, I always think back to that feeling that I got back when I was uh, in the store. From New
2: York City, you're listening to Retail Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry.
0: Hey everybody and welcome to Retail is your business. Uh, I'm Mark Raco, and uh, I'm so happy that Rebecca Fitz has joined us once again. I say she joined us. like this isn't her show like <laughs> like I, I I'm the main guy and she just happened to pop by. That's not true at all. Rebecca is here as she should be. <laughs> hi, Rebecca.
2: Hi, Mark. <laughs> we get a little giddy this time of day, so uh, we do. Ha- is... Everybody, hang on. This could be the the best episode ever.
0: You hear us each week, but we actually record most of our interviews in one day, and this is the last one of the day, so we're we're ripe. It's going to be fun. You never know what could happen. With us, of course, is Ben Rodier from Sales Floor. Ben, welcome to the show. We're really really happy you could join us. Thanks for having me. All the way. Thanks for having something to do with us, Americans. <laughs> right now that's all I have to say, uh anyway, uh <laughs> it's probably like I wouldn't be with you in person, but through a podcast it's okay, <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, of course. so uh Ben, welcome to the show uh, and I should say uh it's deserved without blaming our conversation to say that uh Ben has joined us uh with about two days' notice, if that uh because we happen to have an open time in our schedule and and uh Ben was able to be available, and we do appreciate that, okay. So I want the show. Ben, forgive me for putting you on the spot, but give me your 20-second elevator pitch for SalesFloor. We will expand, but I want to use it as a context for a question. So would you tell us what that 20-second or whatever elevator pitch is?
1: Sure thing. Um, so SalesFloor is a virtual selling and clienteling platform that helps store associates, influencers, and product experts serve customers, whether they choose to shop in-store or online. And we have a number of different features on our platform, which we'll get into later, that essentially empowers the store associate to evolve their role beyond waiting for customers to walk into the store, and it allows them to inform, serve, and transact the customer wherever that customer chooses to shop, whether it's physically there in the four walls or beyond the four walls and into the online world. Okay. So
0: thank you for that. That's perfect. Um, I mean, of course it's perfect. It came from one of the co-founders, but I'm saying that very useful. So here's the question then. Um, clearly this company was launched before the pandemic. This is not a pandemic question, by the way, but it's sort of related. How, if at all, did your vision, you and your co-founders, uh, and who's your co-founder again? Oscar Sachs. Okay. So Oscar gets a proper shout out here. Uh, So you and Oscar, as you envisioned this company and, and kind of corralled other people into supporting you and believing in you, what was your vision of the company versus what the company has become as an essential tool as retail has rapidly time traveled and evolved in a matter of months uh, in very significant ways um, with with a big dive and, tr- and and transition into e-commerce for companies in ways they had not originally intended to be at this moment in time. So you've provided a bit of a bridge to say you can have your feet in both in both places, and we will help you navigate between those two places in a way. It's one of the ways that people do that. So, how is your vision for the company, if at all, changed from the moment you came up with it and launched it? to what it is now in December of 2020?
1: I haven't been asked that question, not only in that way, but I've never opened up an interview um, with a question like that, so I appreciate it. Um, you know, the quick answer is it hasn't changed. The vision of Salesforce that Oscar and I set out to build uh, in 2014, funnily enough, hasn't changed uh, because of the pandemic and COVID. I think what it did do is it accelerated the need for retailers to look at how to have both feet firmly planted. To use your own analogy, Mark, um, on in the brick and mortar space in the online space, and it it forced them to have to take that much more seriously in 2020 than they ever had to before at a speed that I don't think any business uh, ne- needed to move uh, in that kind of speed. So, the vision for Salesfloor at the very beginning was always to Evolve the role of the retail associate to have a much more meaningful impact than you know just putting on the badge and waiting for the customer to walk into the store and answer questions Uh, we always believed that the store associate be it of today or of the future was a member of their local community a trusted product expert and an advisor who customers built relationships with very often it started in the store but as you know especially in the last decade That relationship has transcended, you know, the the web and mobile and text messaging and social media. And so the vision of Salesforce was always to take the role of the store associate and provide that person with tools and technology that allows them to do what they do best. And that is scale the relationship that they have with customers. Now, when you look at what we had been doing for the first, uh, you know, maybe three or four years at Salesforce, when when we were really scaling, um, the growth was good, the, the business was growing, but we were selling something into a market and an industry that was looking at this and saying, great for luxury, great for specialized products, and it makes perfect sense for certain retailers, but it was a nice to have for others. Fast forward to the year of the pandemic and less traffic in stores, much more of a need to you know, be able to connect digitally with your customer. The concept of virtual selling now is table stakes for retail. It's no longer a nice to have for some and, you know, a good to have for others. It's a must have core strategy inside of the retailers, you know, four walls that allows them to sell beyond whether you're selling baby strollers, handbags, luxury items or electronics. So I think, you know, going back to your question, like how has the vision changed? Our own vision hasn't changed, but I think that the reality of the market has literally been turned on its head.
2: I'd have to agree. I'm hearing a lot about um, concierge in store and and private appointments. So when I first read about sales floor, I said, this is, I'm going to date myself by using this, but I think you're going to know what I I mean. It's the little black book that sales folks used to have, but now it's a little black book. It seems like almost on steroids because there's so many different things that you can do, which is so interesting. I'd love to hear a little more about how it interfaces with A.I., Um, Because I think that's something certainly the little black book couldn't do. Um, It it was certainly left to the human. Um, But walk me through that.
1: Sure. Uh, And the little black book is a great example of, you know, kind of what we were bumped up against when we started out in the first few years. Luxury retailers like Saks Fifth Avenue, Saks Fifth Avenue was probably one of our first, you know, big clients that we signed on. Um, four or five years ago, and when they were digitizing their black book they were they were digitizing some some older systems that were doing some of that black book stuff, but you know it's really not a black book anymore, and I think that's that's really the answer to the use cases. The black book was generally a concept reserved for specific retailers in specific categories. If you think about how something like AI works extremely well, you look at something like clienteling clienteling was a word that over the last 10 years, I think retailers struggled with. It was the idea that I could open up my digital black book, I could look up my customers, I could look up their transaction history, and I can maybe reach out to them using an email tool built in, or maybe it's a separate email tool. What Salesforce has done is it's combined virtual selling clienteling with email, text message, video chat appointments, and a lot of other features that I'll I'll talk to you about in in, in the next few minutes. But ultimately, when you ask, how does AI play a role in this? What it really comes down to is understanding if a customer is making purchases and we wanna try and add value to that customer's experience in the future, then we have to look in the past and see, well, how did they get here? What has Rebecca purchased up until this point that will make her much more propensive to buy the next thing that we're going to recommend to her? And where I think I see AI fitting with us the most is telling the associate who to reach out to and when in a scalable way. And I think that's the challenge that the typical black book was never able to achieve because the black book you had to flip to Rebecca's page. You had to look up Rebecca's information and then you as the associate had to figure out what to do next. With a SaaS solution like SalesFloor where we help the store associate, we help to identify the Rebecca's. We help to identify the opportunities based on previous patterns where she has a higher propensity to buy than Mark might have. So it allows the associate to not only, you know, find out who they should reach out to and for what, but the key factor is making sure that if that customer chooses to interact digitally, shop in the store, buy online or through a consumer app, the associate that interacted with Rebecca better get credited for that sale, regardless of how it ends up getting transacted. And that's another you know speed bump that i think that we overcame over the last few years with retailers where now if you look at client telling, there there's some retailers in our portfolio of, of, of companies that use our solution they're doing like seven to nine percent of total annual revenue through virtual selling but that's only because they know how to attribute the sales back to the originating referral which in this case would be client telling.
0: So two two follow ups to that. Uh, one is uh, I do want to affirm that yes, Rebecca has a greater likelihood of buying that than I do, because Rebecca is a gold star shopper. Um, so and you know salute to you, Rebecca, for individually supporting the retail industry. And then uh, so, I'm sorry, I'm exaggerating, but anyway, someone's got to do it uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then and, then, <laughs> and then the second thing is is you know um, weirdly from what you were saying. It made me think of a concept uh, from um, uh, David Meerman Scott and Rako Scott, his daughter, who wrote a book called Fanocracy. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It's about turning fans into customers and customers into fans. And that's really um, where we are now in our relationship building with with consumers is we don't need followers. We need fans. Uh, And... My, so my question is, you know, in a, in a physical retail – I don't mean to make this like physical retail versus e-commerce, but mm-hmm. it's kind of relevant to this. In a physical retail store or when I'm dealing with real people in real life, uh, in person, let's say, um, I can really become a fan. I can get to know who that person is. I can understand a brand by – the commercials they run or the experience I have in their store or or what it smells like. Or when I feel like if I go to um, fairway markets in New York, one thing I know is generally when I go into the produce aisle, I feel like I just got a shot of oxygen. I don't know what they're doing, but there's, I always feel that way in there. They're doing something. And so I'm a fan of that store because of the experience that I have going in. I'm not just a follower. I'm not just aware of the store. So my question is, it seems like the work that you're doing carves out at least a door to walk through for fanocracy to exist within e-commerce. Where do you think that's already happening, if at all, in the work that you're doing? Or where do you think where you're doing has the opportunity to perhaps um, amplify or expand based on what you've already created to allow for e-commerce to have a true consumer experience to the degree that it builds fans.
1: We often talk about what today's e-commerce experience is, um, especially when we launch new programs with our retail partners. Uh, when we introduce sales floor, we look at the before and after of you know what is your digital customer experience before sales floor and after and when you think about what shopping on a website is what is it we're we're visiting a page it has images it has prices it usually has um you know categorization but shopping on e-commerce is generally a lonely experience for the customer it is none of the things that you just described in terms of that fanocracy, right? Like when I walk into the Westin, you know, I always talk about the smell of the West they sell the smell of the Westin because it's part of that experience that you get. And if you were listening to the, the, the introduction that we did together, where you asked me about what I love about retail, um, consumers distributing, if anybody is ever shopped in Canada in the 80s and the 90s, um, you know that consumers distributing was probably the the forefront of e-commerce. You walk into a store, you fill out a chit, your shopping cart, you hand it to a person, that person rings you up, you pay, and you stand there with your copy of your chit, your paper, and you wait for that warehouse to send your box out onto the conveyor belt. Well, that's generally what e-commerce became. We sit alone, we fill out our chit, we submit it, and we wait. So at sales floor, the door opening uh, that you asked about is that we're, we're injecting the human experience into what I just described. And think about the juxtaposition of what I just said versus walking into your favorite store with its favorite smell and your favorite people and your favorite products. And when you walk in, it's all, it's all integrated. You're there and you're experiencing it in person. Well, when you compare that to online today for most retailers that are not on sales floor, it's lonely, it's solitary. And we believe that the human experience of interacting with a store associate, who's a product expert, who you build a relationship with, is something that should not be contained to the four walls of the store. We should be able to have that kind of sensory experience online through site, through audio, through video, live chat, email, text message, social media. The tools are out there. They were just never tuned to connect the e-commerce customer on a website to connect that person to the store in a way that the store could handle the volume and the customer could get what they wanted and everybody wants. So I really believe that that's what SalesFloor brought to the market. It wasn't another live chat tool or another platform for a retailer you know, to buy license fees for. It was to facilitate a sensory experience that we only knew existed in the store and we wanted to bring that to online.
0: I'd like you to join me in supporting an extraordinary mission to make arts education real for underserved kids nationwide and help keep the creative connection alive. Look, arts are not a luxury. From the time that kids develop motor skills, they rely on the arts to learn how to communicate. Arts are a great collaborative experience, and they teach us how to critically think and empathize and understand the human condition. So Mouth Media is proud to partner with AHA Broadway and support their efforts to help bring these vital services back to schools. With every dollar AHA Broadway raises, they will directly serve the kids of New York and beyond. Please visit org slash 1000kids. Again, that's a h. HABroadway.org slash 1000 kids. And please contribute anything you can to their crowdfunding effort.
2: So I'm a tactile learner. Let, let's have, I'm, I'm already having fun, but let's have more fun with this. So I'm in YSL, I'm shopping. Um, I look at a clutch. Um, I end up buying it Um their sort, Therefore, sales floor and, and my associate know what I like. AI matches up some other items for me. Um, and I, g- I guess this is just for my own, how this really works. COVID hits the next day. I still want some YSL items. Um, can then my sales floor and sales associate person from YSL reach out to me and say, I'm in the store even though we're closed today, um, but would you like to do a virtual appointment? yeah, okay yeah. and so and if that's maybe a box I checked or they know that about me,
1: yeah, so there's a few different use cases there for sales floor, uh, especially you know post covid uh, what we are seeing is that uh, first of all, store associates, they can use our solution uh, remotely, so if they are in the store and the store is either closed or limited in terms of how many people can come into the store, a digital selling tool or a virtual selling tool becomes extremely important. The store is closed and this is a professional salesperson who still wants to you know, work with their clients. Sales floor can be used in a work from home, bring your own device type of scenario. Good so far, you guys can hear me? Totally. Yeah. I'll, I'll no, just, it... I'll continue. I'll continue yeah. on because uh, there are a couple more points. So if you think about, you know, Rebecca having walked into the store and made a purchase previously, each retailer using sales floor has a configurable set of rules that essentially wake up the associate at the right time for the right product. So if you bought the clutch that you mentioned, and we know that customers who live in this neighborhood who buy this product have a 500%, 500% better chance of buying the next item up Instead of a clutch, maybe it's a tote, you know, whatever next accessory would would be the right matchup. Well, 30 days after purchase, if that was the the business rule, the, re, the, the associate that made the sale to you would be able to see, oh, my sales floor app is telling me that it's time to reach out to Rebecca. I can email her. I can text her. I can tell her about the products that might be of interest to her. Or if it's COVID, I can invite her to a virtual consultation where she can accept a virtual meeting or a virtual appointment through sales floor. And all of that is is managed by the associate inside of the sales floor app.
2: And so it's interesting at the, the top of the conversation, you certainly mentioned when, when this came out, it totally made sense for luxury. And that's kind of, I think, where the little black book, you know, really kind of originated. Um, so who else is now using this? Because uh, certainly the whole world is now, uh, you know, in a pandemic. Um, and and how is it working? Because I think buying a YSL clutch is a lot different than I'm not going to go as far as Target, but um, you know, different than me stopping into um, a Claire V, which is you know a, a leather goods but she's got yeah. a couple of you know kind of neighborhood stores across the country
1: yeah i mean it's we always knew that our solution was going to be very effective well beyond luxury um, and we were already on our way even before covid we had um we had uh, bye bye baby was one key uh partner that came on and with the bed bath and beyond group the the bye bye baby stores are using sales floor. They're using actual clienteling, the same best practices that we've developed with luxury retailers. But if you think about the consumer at Bye Bye Baby, it's, it, it makes perfect sense. You buy a stroller for the two-year-old, then you have to buy the stroller for the four-year-old. And then once that's done, you, know, you move through stages with this brand. And if you think about, I don't know if you guys have kids, but I remember when I had my first kid, it was a whole new set of brands that I just had no clue about. So the product expert in the store was my guide. That was my Sherpa, to kind of lead me through what a what's a bugaboo and what's a what's what's a Florax or I forget what the names were now. When my kids are older, but but you, you you get the idea, right? Like especially when you think about the registry, where people are looking to buy you gifts, that product expert plays a key role in guiding your sell, and the sales floor app helps them keep track of that. But the most important thing is that once you move past the event date of the baby actually being born well now lies all the opportunities to sell sophie the giraffe and the car seat and then the booster seat and then all of these things so i think what we're seeing now is a decentralization of what was typically luxury use cases and what we're seeing now through virtual selling like sales floor is that a lot of these best practices are moving outside of those niches and into mainstream products I definitely agree with you Rebecca that you know Target and Walmart will probably be one of the last standing retailers that use a solution like Salesforce the way I'm describing but being able to look up products and being able to help a customer inside the store with the help of a an assisted selling application it's not foreign to big box retailers and we are seeing you know beyond you know I would say luxury and baby are two extremes but in between you have jewelry consumer electronics lingerie and there's there's you know retailers that are now coming out and asking for this because of the acceleration of the pandemic uh, in ways that we've never seen before
0: so what you were just talking about Ben it goes right to the question I was sort of hanging on to and I, I think you've partially answered it but um, you know I'm kind of wondering if if sales floor, requires a certain caliber of associate in order to be the most useful or whether it's actually going to elevate perhaps less sophisticated associates to be able to operate at a high caliber. Because, you know, not everybody that works in a retail store has significant training, sales ability or a level of sophisticated ways they wish to apply themselves to be a really useful ambassador of the store who's going to go those extra levels, even though they have this amazing tool at their disposal. Um, So it seems to me when you talk about this being luxury or whatever, that's where you have often your most experienced type of people or the people operating at a higher caliber. Uh, You have something like Walmart, not all of the associates there are going to be at that high caliber. Um, and so so I guess I already asked the question, but would you say it's more about raising the game of the average associate or it for it to really work at its best, you need a more experienced sophisticated associate?
1: I, I think we, we've answered this question. If you look at the variety of clients that we have now, um, you can see that whether you're, an hourly employee that works at a big box store, like Bye Bye Baby, or you're a professional salesperson, like the YSL example that Rebecca gave us earlier. In both those cases, there's a very valuable use case. But the way I boil it down is simple. You either have relationships that need to be leveraged and harvested, for lack of a better word, using digital technology across SMS, email, live chat. You've got to be able to connect with that customer and use the relationship because relationships are currency now, or it's not so much about the one to one relationship, but it is about the product expertise required to buy what you're looking to buy. And that's the buy bye baby case. I don't necessarily form relationships with the individual associates at my local buy by baby store. But I do have an affinity to my team of associates at that store. And I need help to buy the stroller because I don't know the difference between, for example, a three-wheel stroller and a four-wheel stroller in the snow. Is one better than the other? The product knowledge required for me to get what I need to make the right decision is in that store with those trained associates. So I think it crosses two dimensions. One is the need for relationship-based selling. We see that a lot in beauty, a lot in luxury. But if you think about product knowledge and product expertise, it could very well be Target and Walmart beauty categories or baby categories. Like we see with Bye Bye Baby, you know, that's a big box. It's specialized in baby, so it's it makes good sense. But my comment earlier about Walmart and Target is speaking to them from a general merchandise standpoint. You know, if I walk into a store and I'm looking for an accessory for my doorstop, it's not like going into a Home Depot where there's an actual trained expert there who I might have that relationship with because that's why i go to home depot my use case as a consumer in walmart is very different than in a specialized retailer like home depot or bye bye baby so to answer your question i don't think it's reserved for the upper crust or highly professional retail sales professionals i think it's need based i think there's a need for it across very different dimensions in retail luxury was just the first mover in this space
2: it seems like it's also helping to even the playing field and i think this issue we've gotten over the hump of it in retail but i think there's probably still some um I helped this person every step of the way and explained it. And I was a subject matter expert and then they go home and they buy it online. Um, and it seems like sales floor can help in that a little bit, particularly if I was going to get commissioned or even if I wasn't going to get commissioned, if I were going to get some kind of, you know, check Mark for, for who I helped that day, you know, that kind of thing, um, which I do think still, still goes on. Um, so probably a welcome, um, Welcome tool from from sales associates.
1: One of the first things that we heard coming out of the very first trainings, you know, when we had just launched, was retail sales associates in stores saying, "You guys have solved the problem that allows me to use my website and my e-commerce as a tool with my customer, as opposed to me having to compete against my own e-commerce for my customer sales." And that's been one of the things that have just rung true, you know, from all the way back when we started all the way up until today, you know, we just launched Pandora and Ben Benbridge, uh, which are our two jewelry retailers. And they're saying the exact same thing that we heard six years ago from some of the earliest retailers that we worked with. And that is we are demystifying the digital aspect of retail for really the last people that were given the opportunity to leverage digital. And that was the, the in-store associate.
0: Ben, how are you acquiring your consumers? And I mean this less from a let's change to a business development discussion, but uh, I I would love a, a direct answer to that about actually, you know, how are you discovering people? Are they discovering you? And it's just like you're standing there with a solution in your hand and there's a line or are you actively pursuing people and proselytizing this? So that's sort of part one of the question. Part two and a related part of the question is, have you considered or are you pursuing that you can be a helpful partner and friend to physical retailers to arm them with a tool that they can hand their tenant to say, yes, you're going to rent space here uh you're gonna stay on as our tenant or you're gonna rent new space here, and we're gonna help bring traffic to your store and everything that you normally would do as a as a landlord. but we're also going to arm you with a way for you to seamlessly transition and toggle back and forth between your physical retail and and e commerce as to be a true strategic partner with you um so are you thinking in that direction? And how are you getting most of your clients is really the two
1: sure. questions. I'll, I'll answer the uh, the sales question first as to how we're getting new clients. So we have a traditional sales team. Uh, we have an amazing sales team that every day, hard work, determination, and reaching out to um, retailers. That's what they do all day. And I know how hard it is to you know get through. So big credit to, to that team over the years of building up our portfolio of clients. Um, I would say the best the best way that we get new clients is as we have one end user, like a store associate, go from one retailer to another retailer, mm. and they say, "Do you guys have sales floor?" And when the answer is no, some associates say, "Well, that's not good enough," and they make some noise, and uh, the wind gets pushed in our direction. If if, if wow. I can say so. That's um, so. We have, you know, probably the largest concentration of department stores right now than anyone else in our in our industry. Um, so, if you've worked at Bloomingdale's or Saks or Neiman Marcus or Macy's, uh, or up in Canada, we have, you know, Holt Renfrew and um, and, Huts- and Hudson's Bay. So, if you've worked in department stores in the last, you know, ten years, you probably know sales floor. And wherever you go next, uh, we have even the research that shows that. Store associates are happier when they have technology that helps them drive their business. So a big part of our success is word of mouth uh, and um, and the uh, the pass along factor.
0: Sorry, so as part of your business development strategy are you are do you have a concentrated effort to create dissatisfaction with associates where they are so they move on and, and further your mission sorry it's, go ahead
1: it's, 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 it's a funny question
2: <laughs> well, it used to be, and i I think it's getting better that there was a hundred percent turnover in retail, so it probably was fantastic for your business model i'm hoping um, that's slowing down with all the changes that retail is going through and how um important retail associates are essential or non-essential to the experience. Um, but, but it is, I mean, it's, it's so interesting that you played that out, but, um, uh, yes, it, it, it's a funny question, but word of mouth is really what it is. They just happen to be moving around.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. And, and the truth is, is, is even before COVID, we, we had actually done that. We did a survey, we did a survey of store associates and, We 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 had a control group versus a test group, and we we saw that when you have solutions like Salesforce, and I'm not just saying Salesforce, but when you have the right tools and technology at work, you're happier at work, and you don't churn out as quickly as as you would have otherwise. Um, So yeah, the word of mouth thing is 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 key, and you know we every time we post something on LinkedIn, I'm always it's it's a smile on my face on Saturday morning when I'm scrolling through and catching up on the news and I see one of our company's posts and an associate that said, "Yep, I was at Saks, I was at Bloomingdale's, I rolled them out in both places, love it," you know, or I was here, then I was there, rolled it out there. And so you really get that that compounding factor where, you know, it's it it didn't just work for in one place. It actually worked for that same associate in multiple places, but um, another i will I will go back to to Mark's question, you know in terms of how we sell and how we acquire new customers. It's also our partners. You know we have uh, whether you're looking at Apple devices or Zebra devices or Android devices, we have one of those platforms that, unlike a lot of our competitors, we 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 designed it from the very start to be able to be work on on any platform and and any device. So, um getting referrals from you know clients and from uh, industry partners has also helped us in a big way make sure that you know whether you're looking at an android device or an apple device salesforce will work seamlessly regardless
2: I'm I'm just going to say this as a comment I've been posting a lot on um what's happening to department stores good good and bad and I think something will come and take their place. Um, and these folks that are using Salesforce who have made the rounds that some of the biggies will will end up somewhere. But it is interesting that that space is ebbing and flowing, if you will. Um, and it'll be interesting to see w- where they bring the product next, actually, yeah. for you, to be to be quite honest.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's definitely an interesting space. And I'd like to believe that we're part of the solution of some of the, I don't know if you call them ebbs or flows, but Um, we are, we are, we are definitely playing, you know, an increasingly vocal role with all of our clients on things, not only that we should be doing today, but some of the roadmap work that we're doing when we look ahead six, 12 and 18 months, you know, there's things that we didn't even dream of last year that now are really becoming a reality because we're looking ahead at what this post COVID world is going to look like from a retail perspective yeah
2: we just talked about grocery early today and i was thinking this to me sounds like my worst nightmare but if you're really particular about your food and you have someone who's shopping for you which by the way when covid first started i would go to the grocery store and i'd be like i don't know any of these people and they were shoppers for you know instacart or whatever um I don't think you probably apply there. I can't imagine a customer saying, no, I want that avocado over that one. But, you know, the world has really um, changed. And as much as people think we're going to get a vaccine and things are going to um, bounce back, which I'm certainly very hopeful that they will, there's some things that are are probably going to stick with us. So um, it'll be interesting to see
0: what categories come up next.
2: I, I hope it's not grocery, actually, but you know, one never knows.
0: All right, this seems like a perfect uh, time for us to transition into personal questions, uh, where we get to know Ben as more of a human, a little less sales floor, a little more Ben. Uh, right after this. you well- You're rolling, Mark. Oh, yes, I am. Uh, (laughs) Hey, hey everybody. I'm Mark Rako. And I am Puffin Ball. And we are two of the hosts of Fashion is Your Business, which is a weekly show. And in part, it's about fashion tech, but it's also about the intersection of business and technology, innovation, e-commerce, business strategy, you name it, we probably talk about it. We've had many people on the show over the last six years. We've been, we've not missed a week. Every week we've had at least one show. That's more than 350 episodes uh, with some of the foremost fashion technology. Wait, have, have we,
1: we uh, I, I don't actually know the
0: stat. Are Have we ever missed a week? I don't think we've ever missed a week in one way or another, presenting some value. But uh, but enough about us. Let's talk about you.
1: Wow. Um, No, look, if I'm going to throw my promo out there, I'll say that as a retail strategist, uh, we go very deep into um, really curating the conversation. So whether they be investors or futurists, strategists, um, a lot of technology founders, I mean... Uh, brand leaders, the the conversations and the
2: wealth and the the spectrum of people that have been on the show are are incredible and to think back on the last six
1: years which I I actually did not know it was six years. I was going to say five but still... Um, unbelievable uh, the, the breadth of information that's in here and yeah
0: uh, I've learned a ton so I'm assuming other folks have learned a ton as well look to us it's been like a masterclass covering everything from textiles to retail and everything in between it covers business news from startups to conglomerates And the show is a fun and accessible morning radio vibe. Uh, We have fun and you will too. But the main thing is whether or not you are in the fashion industry or fashion technology, there's something here for everybody. You'll hear us every Tuesday without fail on Fashion is Your Business. And guess what? You can find it pretty much anywhere you find your best podcasts, everywhere from Spotify to Apple to Stitcher to Google. All of the things. All of the things. Fashion is your business. Mm All right, Ben. Uh, this is where we get to know you uh, by digging in to the personal side, if you will. Uh, so, uh, Rebecca, uh, not to put you on the spot, but I'm going to I'm going to invite you to uh, to lead us off if you have a question in mind.
2: Sure. Um, well, I grew up very close to Canada, near Montreal, and I I, I love it. Um, what is one of your favorite um, outside of the one you used? Um, childhood memory of growing up in Canada, and I guess make it really Canadian, if you will.
1: <laughs> I don't think it gets more Canadian than, uh, you know, winter sports, skating and uh, and skiing. Um, you know, skiing is one of the things that, you know, we're taping this interview now during, during the pandemic, and we have some pretty severe lockdown rules that have gone into effect here. We're, we're in Montreal, Rebecca, so.
2: Oh, amazing. Close,
1: close to your home. So, you know, some of my best memories growing up in Montreal has to be uh, going up north into the mountains, uh, ski trips with the family. Um, and now that I have kids, it's uh, it's exciting to be able to kind of relive the, a lot of those memories with my little ones.
2: Amazing. Amazing. I do not love the cold, but um, people rave about the skiing. Um, and, you know, if you can handle the 18 below... <laughs> And you enjoy that. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's also very beautiful. So no, I, I, I love that. And I have very fun memories. I was on the New York side, but of um all the things that Montreal has to offer.
0: All right. So Ben, that was a great question. Ben. Uh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to preface this by question because it'll help me how I ask it. Would you say you're more of a technical guy or a business guy?
1: I'm more of a business guy. Um, I've learned the technical side of uh, our business uh, over the last several years. Um, so now when I am talking with clients or partners, uh, I think they view me more as the technical guy, but our engineers and our product folks, uh, those are the technical guys at sales floor, uh, guys and girls. Gotcha. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm the business guy.
0: Okay. So here's my question then. Think back even to being a child. What is the earliest memory you have of selling something? So you could have sold an idea that allowed you to get away with something, or you sold a product, or you sold a service, or you, you sold your way out of trouble, or whatever it is. But what's the first time you you clearly remember effectively selling something where you say, wow, I I put that argument together pretty well and made that happen.
1: So it wasn't as a child. I mean, it's I I have a, a lawnmower service story that I'm sure a lot of people have when they were in their teenage years, and it was door to door. And it was, you know, I lived in a neighborhood where the houses was like a row. And so getting to the backyard meant having to take the lawnmower like up into the house and out the back and then you do it and then you got to go so it was probably the worst use of my time uh (laughs) for the two houses that i ended up landing uh but if you fast forward a few years my first real um my first real business venture uh was a new year's eve party in 1999 with a couple of friends and we turned it into what is still today a pretty big operation and we operated probably marketing to people like rebecca who were in neighboring states and provinces and were between the ages of 18 and 20 because in in uh, sorry uh yeah between 18 and 20 because in montreal and quebec the drinking age is 18 years old and in new york at the time it was 21 and in ontario it was 19 so when you were 17, 18, 19 years old, what a lot of people did is they traveled to Montreal for a crazy party weekend during the holidays on New Year's Eve. So my friends and I put together an event at a very large concert venue. Rebecca's laughing because she's probably been there
2: i have totally done this thankfully i don't think my parents listened to this show and they pro- <laughs> they probably know what happened but i also was in the middle of when it went from 19 to 21 and that right. was a disaster Me so too. We, had, we we had to go to montreal <laughs> I, yeah.
0: I i i t- sorry but with, i don't want to delay your your story because i'm very eager to hear this but i have to tell you rebecca when i when, um i was living in new york when i was in college and my um uh the the drinking age changed from 19 to 21 my birthday's in september and it did not so i started um i started my junior was it or my sophomore year of college turning 19 And the drinking age changed January 1st to 21 and did not grandfather. So it was legal (laughs) for three months and not legal for two more years. You got pulled
1: back. Yeah.
0: Oh my God. Anyway, sorry. So, Ben, go ahead, please.
1: No problem. So, we, um, anyways, we put together this event. Originally, it was for friends, turned into friends of friends, turned into friends of friends of friends in New York State and Michigan and Boston and. Ontario, and sooner or later we a few years later we had a we had a thriving one time a year business where for three months we stressed out and we f- ticket sales and venue and and entertainment and all of this, and we were responsible for the safety of twelve hundred people one night a year, open bar and it was uh, looking back it's a miracle that you know nothing ever happened, but it was it was an amazing experience to stand on stage and wow. see. Twelve hundred people that have all traveled to your city to uh to party. What was this business called? It's called Fluid New Year's. Oh, that's
0: cool. You know, it's, I
2: it's so cool. I, I I was not part of it, but I the, would have loved to have been.
0: <laughs> I when I came to New York, I came here as an actor actually. Okay. And and one of my first like real professional gigs that I landed, there was a company called New Year's Nation. Did you mm-hmm. hear of that company? Probably so New yeah. yeah, they were doing a thing where they did multiple cities and it was all satellite linked and or, or Internet linked or whatever, where basically it was like one big party was happening in a bunch of cities all at one time. And and then they would you would see the other venues on the screens. Sure. And so it was like you were all in the same place. It was really cool. So they yeah. had a series of of Internet commercials featuring this character called Barry the New Year's Ball. Who like a month or two before New Year's was wandering around, like asking people if they if they know how far New Year's is, and he's like walking around the streets of New York in a giant New Year's ball costume made by the Jim Henson people, and uh, and uh, and and I played Barry the New Year's ball, wandering <laughs> through the streets of New York to, with New Yorkers interacting with me, doing a lot of improv with them, and this great character, um, you know. Anyway. You just brought back a flood of memories from, yeah. from that. No, New, I, Year's,
1: New Year's Eve is big business, no question. People, yeah, uh, yeah, right? It's crazy. So,
0: All right, so Ben, thank you so much for that. Uh, what would you sort of like to say in reflection of our entire conversation, maybe a final word or a parting thought to our, uh, our listeners that might let you be a little tip of the hat farewell thought?
1: Well, first of all, it's been a fun, it's been a fun interview. I got to say, like, I haven't had many interviews like this, you know, where we weren't rattling off statistics and platform usage data uh, to to the press. So appreciate it, Rebecca and Mark. Um, And for for the listeners, I mean, I I, I think that we're at a really interesting, you know, moment in in business. It's not just about retail technology. It's, there's an opportunity that's going to exist uh, for the next you know probably 6 to 12 months where we're going to solidify a lot of the change that we were forced into at the beginning of this year and I think we're very lucky at sales floor that we are what feels like to be on the right side of of this change but there are a lot of other businesses that I'm more than well aware of that are not or are trying to figure it out and I think that when you look at the other side of our market which is obviously in this case the retailers and the customers my final message would be to, to to take those chances and to lean on the side of innovation because what has worked in the past up until this point is not going to work in the future. And we have to modify the way we shop, modify the way we, we live and we spend money. And I think that there are plenty of partners out there, one of them being SalesFloor, who are on the hunt for partners and clients to believe in innovation, invest in innovation, and help us all change, you know, some of the things that we need to change as we find our way out of this pandemic and onto the next chapter of, of life.
0: Brilliant, brilliant, I love it. All right, thank you. And how can people connect with you, Ben, and with SalesFloor?
1: We're uh, we're on LinkedIn, we're online, salesfloor.net. Um, there's a contact us page there where if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, we'd be happy to uh, present an introduction and a live demo to uh, anyone that's interested. Awesome.
0: All right, Ben Rodier, the co-founder of SalesFloor. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from above our border uh and uh thanks to 21st century technology we do appreciate it very much and uh continue good luck i think there's a, a extraordinary path for you guys forward as you continue to discover new layers and new ways to connect with people so uh best of luck and congratulations
1: awesome thank you very much guys it was great being here
0: you betcha well, everybody, that is sadly the end of this episode of Retail is Your Business. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Uh, glad you were here. We'll see you next week for another episode. But until then, for Rebecca Fitz.
2: Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Ben.
0: I'm Mark Rayco. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.
2: This has been Retail is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network.